Hi, and welcome to another installation of SciFlix here at Tune FM. I'm the host today, Bridget Glover. Um, Dr. Marissa Betts, the legend, is busy today doing important science things. Um, so it's me. And actually, I will be taking on the role of coordinator for SciFlix in 2024. So this is like a soft launch for me, which <laughs> is really exciting. Um, I'm not a scientist, I'm a film PhD candidate So um, here at UNE, so I do love sci-fi films, um, which is close enough, right? Um, SciFlix is a collaboration between Belgrave Cinema, Tune FM and UNE Life here in Armadale, where we get to watch science-themed films on the big screen and we get to hear from an expert afterwards and do like a Q&A. It's really, really fun. The next film we have coming up is Arrival and that will be on the 23rd of November at 6 p.m. And we've got two experts here today, Dr. Sally Dixon and Dr. Pierce Kelly, who are going to join us now and on the night. Um, thank you so much for joining us, guys. It's great to be here. Great to be here. Um, <laughs> just to be specific, Sally, you're a linguist, and Pierce, you're a linguistic anthropologist? That's right. Yes, nailed it. Okay, I've got a bunch of questions. Um, firstly, what were your pathways into science or um, specifically, I guess, linguistics and anthropology? Um, where did it start for you? Were you, you know, into it when you were a young person or did it come later? Yeah, I think um, I grew up in a family that was very language noticey, if I can put it like that. Lots of puns, lots of um, singing a song where the lyric is appropriate to the situation. <laughs> like if my dad was ever left out of something, he'd go, what about me? <laughs> um, so on reflection, we are a family of language notices. Mm. Um, in our culture, certainly in middle class Anglo-Australian um, culture, there are very few ways that you can channel that into something um, kind of more formal. So one is learning a foreign language, I suppose, which I did at school and, and university. Um, the other way, if you're a language noticer, that you kind of get socialised is to being someone that like carries around a bunch of pet peeves about language and you're really obnoxious and everyone hates you. Um, and so it wasn't really till I got to university and I went to kind of an information session on linguistics that I was like, oh, wow, you... I mean, that just kind of piqued my interest in a way. There are people here that get me. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Like, oh, these are these look like people who notice stuff about language and want to talk about it, but not in a really obnoxious mm -hmm. way. And that's how I kind of sell linguistics to first-year students. Is like, I'm like, look, I know a bunch of you. The only way you've been able to express your noticings is being in, like, someone who tries to correct other people's grammar. But let me tell you, linguistics is going to give you um, a much more interesting way to channel that ability and interest in language, right? So, which yeah. not everyone has, you know. I mean, I'm not interested in ballet, but um, mm -hmm. everyone has different things. But, yeah, I definitely think I was in a language notice family, but it wasn't really till I got to university and haphazardly discovered linguistics that um, yeah. that was channeled into something positive, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah often the way, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, what about you? I didn't do linguistics at university as an mm -hmm. undergraduate. I did literature and I did um, languages and that sort of thing. But I was always very interested in language and I ended up working as an editor for a publishing company. And mostly what I was doing is editing, it was editing phrase books that are used by tourists. You know, wow. the kind of, um, where is the bus station? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then I guess I went from that into eventually doing a PhD um, in linguistics. But by the time I finished that PhD, I realised 
I was slightly more interested in the people speaking the language yeah. and what their deal was than the languages themselves. I'm mm. still very much interested in language, but linguistic anthropology is somewhere in, in the middle. It's about how do people use language to enact other things other than straightforward communication? So how language as action and language as performance and those sorts of ideas. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, well, that leads me on to, like, uh, the next question. Well, because what kind of research are you doing now? Are you... How far away from your PhD are you? It's been... Oh, for me, oh, about nine years, I yeah, think. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you've had plenty of time plenty to of time. go into new yeah. So what are you working on at the moment? Well, me, right now, at this moment, I'm working on a really interesting um, problem, which is um, early Homo sapiens in Europe in the last ice age produced a lot of little artifacts on bone where they carved notches or signs on bone and there, there are hundreds of these in um, southern France, northern Spain that have turned up and there's been an old question since the 19th century of how do we know whether these are meaningful? Are they recording information? Are they recording the number of um, you know, um, kills, hunting kills or something like that or phases of the moon, things like that. Yeah, and it's it's not a very, it's probably never be a resolved question, but I'm interested in how do you determine whether something like that contains information or whether it's just decorative, mm -hmm. which is a different kind of information. So the way I'm looking into that is by trying to compare these objects, these, um, these uh, Ice Age objects with other devices used by more contemporary societies for marking objects for information mm. and seeing what kinds of patterns emerge. So that's what I'm working on right now. That's so exciting. So that's the um, Australian Message Stick project. Uh, it's somewhere slightly related to Ooh, that project. Yeah. Can I hear a little bit about that? Yeah, so the Australian Message Stick project is all about trying to understand um, message sticks. And message sticks are these amazing little objects. They're made of wood. They've got little... Um, uh, engravings on them or sometimes paint markings on them and they're used traditionally for communicating long distance between communities in Australia and they were used over almost all of Australia um, and until that they went out of use mostly um, until um, the 1970s the last place they were used traditionally was up in Arnhem Land in the 1970s wow. but um, mostly they're not within living memory. So the aim of the project firstly is to find out what happened to all these objects that were collected in large numbers between the late 19th century and the early 20th century. They went all around the world into museums and we're just trying to track them down sure. and find out where they came from and if possible any information about what they might mean. So that's kind of stage one and stage two is looking more generally at what is this system, how did it work? Mm. Um, and so on. Okay, all right. Yeah. So I'll ask Sally about what you're into at the moment, but I want to come back to that as well. Okay. So yeah, what about you, Sally? Um, I'm really interested. My my sort of research career has been being interested in what happens in sites of language contact. So this is where I mean, sort of that's a fairly kind of um, uh, unclear term. By contact, you know, we mean things like invasion, colonisation, sure. like quite dramatic, um, yeah. you know, often horrific things. So um, I don't, um, the term contact seems a little bit uh, sterile, but that's what we're looking at. Um, and I'm particularly interested 
in how multilingualism maybe emerges or changes in insights of, of language contact. So I um, am looking at uh, children who speak, so these are Alyaura children in Central Australia, and um, they are now, as a result of ongoing contact, now don't speak their traditional language, Alyaura, when they're very little. Mm. They speak um, what is known as a Creole or a contact language. So this is a language that um, is kind of a mixture of the grammar and words of English and the grammar and words of Alyaura, the traditional language. Um, and I'm interested in that language and what it's like, but also how those kids then develop into multilingual adults because yeah. they, as they grow up, they will take on standard Australian English primarily through their schooling mm. um, and then will probably learn Alyaura as they get into sort of adulthood. So I'm interested in, I say I describe repertoires of language use rather than specific languages. So yeah. that's how I'm a little bit different to maybe other linguists that might be particularly interested in one language. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I'm interested in these kinds of repertoires of language use that emerge in sites of contact. Right, okay, so before you were at UNE and you, you were in Germany before then, but prior you were working as a field linguist so I assume that this is all kind of um, working into what you're doing now but you were working on endangered languages and indigenous languages yeah how long, how long were you doing that and what did that sort of entail yeah so before I I mean I finished my undergrad degree and then I did a few different kinds of um, jobs so I worked in the Philippines in an indigenous education NGO and so mm. we were developing multilingual um, curricula there so how, looking at how kids could grow into multilingual adults right. um, and then when I, I came back to Australia and I was working at Wonkamaya Pilbara Aboriginal Language Centre yeah. and Australia is quite special in that um, it, the government does fund a number of Aboriginal language centres around the country and their remit is to um, document um, preserve but also encourage and the maintenance and use of um, Aboriginal languages around Australia. So um, I worked there for a number of years and that work was main, mainly in the kind of documentation space. So it was making things like dictionaries and grammars and resources that could be used in school programs, yeah, exactly. things yep. like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, that yeah. was that was really great. Yeah, it was a, yeah, absolutely. A great experience, really fulfilling and. Do you think it's something that you'll get to go back to, or yeah, I hope know, so. Between? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it definitely. I definitely like the um, the kind of scrappy nature of working in an NGO where you're kind sure. of doing something different every day, and yeah, um, yeah it's it's very um, the 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 sort of really special thing about Aboriginal language centres and Wonkamaya in particular is that there's a very strong in, in Indigenous governance framework, mm. so you always feel like you are being directed by community, what they want, what their outcomes are. And sometimes in academia that can be a little bit harder um, to juggle because the demands of the institution are sometimes um, in direct conflict with uh, community aims. Yeah. So that's been yeah, a different, that's another interesting set of challenges about mm, now absolutely. working back in the academy, but yeah. Yeah, yeah great. And okay, so um, you were both in the Philippines. Your book came out last year. Um, the Last Language on Earth, which is an investigation of the artificial language created in the highland region of Philippines in the 1920s. Um, how did you become aware of this? You know, when did this all sort of begin and what made you decide to write the book? Um, well, I was 
still working at that publishing company and then this opportunity came up yeah. for um, within what was then called AusAid mm-hmm. um, but doesn't exist anymore but the Australian Aid Project they were putting people for short assignments in Southeast Asia and that's in fact where I met Sally. We oh, both went to the Philippines but we yeah. were at different ends of the country. Really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was um, down on an island called Bohol and the, the goal of the, the, the work was to describe what was, dis- what was understood as a, an undocumented Indigenous language of Bohol. But I was also aware um, that this was a controversial language. So there were some people, including speakers of this language, which is called Iskayan, who said we are Indigenous people and they were um, seeking protections under the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act. And other people were saying, no, it's not a real language, they're not a real people, they've made up their language, in fact, they're a cult. Um, oh, my gosh. And it's an interesting story because these, this group was quite isolated until the 1980s. Um, but by the time I got there um, and started doing asking about language and doing elicitation, um, you know, they had been well and truly a lot of contact with the rest of the Philippines. Yes. And this was not at all like the movie Arrival in <laughs> that it, this, this documentation was quite easy by comparison because wow. we were working through yeah. other languages, including Philippine English and a language called Visayan. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the archival material, um, that was largely in Spanish. So right. there were all these... Um, languages that were scaffolding this work and making it not quite as challenging as yeah. talking to aliens. Yeah, it yeah. was we both knew what we wanted to achieve. And so I ended up recording about um, 3,000 individual words of this language and then doing a kind of a description of the grammar wow. and talking to people about their folklore and so on and looking at genealogies as well. So where did these people come yes. from? Yeah. And I concluded that the language had been... Um, developed for the first time through the 1920s and 30s mm-hmm. um, and that the group was in fact had been um, a, a radical um, cult? cult yeah and um, oh they're not anymore and they wouldn't characterize themselves as that anymore um, wow. but and they have stories that their their understanding of themselves is that no we've always spoken this language we spoke it even before the spanish came really? here so the book is really trying to tell both stories mm-hmm. and not say that one's more important than the yeah, other yeah. but really to try and understand what what went on here yeah, exactly. so it's called the last language on earth because they love prophecies mm-hmm. and one of their prophecies is one day everyone's going to be speaking our language and all the other languages in the world will die this will be the last language on earth so it's Did worth they have like a time frame? Did they know when <laughs> no. that was going to well, happen? Well, it's funny, like, uh, even while I was there, different prophecies would get sure. activated. So there'd be an earthquake. Ah, that was a prophecy. You know, oh I was like, gosh, okay. But I feel like that, yeah, that, I feel like that one's already been fulfilled a few times. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that sounds that's so fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, a couple of good segues into our movie, Arrival. Um, Arrival makes being a linguist look really cool. Um, is there something... Is this something that's been happening before? Because I'm trying to, when I was doing my own research, I was trying to find films with linguists. And it was tough, actually. It's really tough. Um, especially sci-fi, which I was surprised about. Um, but so the protagonist, Louise, Amy Adams, gets sort of taken from her you know, regular life as a linguistics professor to go and chat with some aliens, two big aliens, um, and, you know, p- with the potential of trying to save the planet. Um, 
I would like to know if you were asked to do this, would you do it? Because I think I would personally be um, too scared, afraid. I would be, I would be terrified. But I don't know. That's just me. You guys might be fascinated and raring to go. I mean, I would a hundred percent do it. Would yeah, you? Yeah, I would totally do it. You'd be talking about it for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, what that's a great true. story! If you made it out alive. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just as disclosure to the listeners, Piers and I are also. <laughs> life partners and we have children yes, together FYI. so we definitely wouldn't do this together it would be no, definitely a situation one of us, that one we of would us take it in turns and if <laughs> one of us to. came out alive then the other person would. maybe maybe we should sort like this that. out now yeah. we should ride it in our wheel it's a bit like how <laughs> definitely. We, we used to ride, my, ride motorbikes before we had children and now we're not doing that no. until right? our children yeah. I, know. <laughs> I know you have to imagine if only one went the yeah. resentment it well, would not end I mean well. I didn't think about that actually yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> no, you're welcome. Um, so what did we think overall? Uh, you guys have obviously seen this film. Uh, what did you think of the portrayal of Louise as a, you know, a linguist representative? Is it, is it you know, accurate? Are we yeah. talking really? It really yeah. is. Really? Yeah. Mm. It really is. It's We're all really hot really? too. Yeah, you of can't, course, The listeners course. can't see, but we are <laughs> yeah, stunning, yeah, just really. like Amy. I'm pretty yeah. sure Jeremy Renner's not a linguist. <laughs> no. in the yeah, I don't want to disparage physicists. Definitely <laughs> <No>. choose linguistics. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, it is. It's, in fact, I mean, you know, the other famous depiction of a linguist in a movie is the guy from My Fair Lady who's completely That's obnoxious. Came up as well. <laughs> well, exactly. I know. Not really a great snobbery. Yes. Yeah. Um, or very problematic. Um, <laughs> but no, Louise is great. And in fact, yes. I mean, just to let you all behind the curtain, the linguistics community was very engaged in the entire process of this film, particularly right, because yeah. a number of linguists from McGill University were consulted in the process. And in fact, even things like they went and took photographs of their offices mm. and borrowed books from their offices. And um, so Jessica Kuhn, one of the linguists who was primarily consulted, you know, she said they took photos of the fact that she had a, a ruler on her desk and that that's in <laughs> yes. the film. And, yeah. um, they even... Um, made um, uh, like uh, the, the computer screen of her desk look like it had real linguistic software on it. Wow. I think for proprietary reasons, they couldn't just put the actual software sure, on it. Sure. But, but um, they made kind yeah. of, um, you know, ersatz mm. versions. Um, and so we were all very happy yeah. <laughs> about that. So all great. Yeah. See, for all of the film listeners, that's related to mise en scene. <laughs> so really important about getting all those background details yeah. correct. If, you know, otherwise I feel like if all those linguists went to the cinema at, you know, the premieres, we would be going this is wrong and then you get mm. trash. So we don't There are that. still, uh, to be fair, there are, there, there are still a few. <laughs> yeah. It's Hollywood kind of yeah, moments yeah. where yeah. linguists yeah. kind of go that way. No, <laughs> no. Um, like Portuguese doesn't sound very different from other no. European languages. And linguists don't do translation. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's another the big thing, thing right? They is don't that do okay? Translation. Yeah, that's, that's the big, pretty big gap. I mean, some translators are also linguists, but translation it's, it's is a different thing. Different specialty. Yeah, okay, Absolutely. And it's one of those, you know, Things that is a bit of a bugbear of linguists, but it's part of a larger um, problem is that no one really knows that linguistics exists. So, yeah. um, you know, kind of we're happy to be included. Exactly. <laughs> she put you on the map, which is like very yeah. nice for, you know, like lectures as well. She's yeah. going like, yeah, cool. Come over here. <laughs> Let me teach you. Um, so when it comes to the movies um, where we're watching humans trying to communicate with aliens, we see a lot of interesting methods um, in contact they use prime numbers, 
in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, they use musical tones. Um, what do you guys think about Louise's methods? Um, and I want to know if there's a sort of a different way that you guys would approach it. Um, she's she's very much sort of looking at these, you know, what are they called? Heptopods. Um, or, yeah. or the signs. The signs. Yeah, um, semigrams or semigrams. Right, or something. Yeah. yeah. You know, what do you guys feel about her methods? Is that kind of yeah, the best way to go about talking to someone who is like, it's a completely different language? Yeah, so, I mean, her method is very recognisable. It's mm-hmm. um, being called the monolingual elicitation method. So yes. they're sort of what you sort of start with first kind of thing. Um, right. It's very different in that the assumptions that we have, on, uh, the sort of background assumptions, if you go uh, to another human group right. and, and start to do this elicitation method with them, the, there's a whole lot of context that is there that is not there exactly. in, in this situation. Yeah. So. Um, it, it's sort of interesting to see how actually there's quite a bit of nuance about that that does make it into the film. Mm. So there are things like, so one thing that's super recognisable is um, let's, if I want to get you to name something, then it's easier to get you to name something that I can point to and touch and hold mm-hmm. um, than some abstract concept, right? So yes. it's, if I wanted to ask you so, for a word in your language, it's better to point to maybe a body part or um, something that's in the shared context, yeah. like, a, I don't know, a stick or something, rather than what's your word for love, mm. something that mm. I can't kind Huge. of depict. Yeah. 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 And so she does that and she, yes. but because they're just in this space together, so she does a bit of creating the context, right? So she points to herself. Mm. Um, I, in one thing, there's, I think, um, is it Ian, the physicist, walks? He, he walks, He walks, yeah. yes. Yeah, so yeah, he yeah. does the action. Mm. So she's doing a bit of nouns, a bit of verbs, mm. but verbs that are really concrete, like you can depict walk, whereas you mm. can't, how do you depict love? Sure. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Um, so that's recognisable. But they do talk about in the film where she's saying, well, hang on, we don't even know if we have the first principles in common because we don't even know if this being right. thing has any um, intention to communicate. Yeah. So we don't yeah. even have that on the table. Whereas when you encounter another human, you can be fairly certain that they can have the same capacity for intention to communicate yep. that you can. Yeah. And so they sort of, in a way, they're, they're sort of going, well, let's just give it a shot anyway and see mm. what happens. Mm. But being tentative about what might be coming back. So she's often sort of saying oh, well, it could be this, but we don't know it could also be this. So one of the things, for example, is a property of human languages, all human languages, is that they're compositional. So we take building blocks and we combine them in mm. different ways. So that you could think of that as a word and we can take... It's not just that one word only appears in one sentence, mm-hmm. but we can take all words and throw them into different sentences. But animal calls are not like that, for right. example. Yep. They're meaningful units... But they're not decomposable into um, parts that you kind of rebuild into other things. Mm. So she doesn't know what um, heptapod is in that sense. Yes. She doesn't know if it's like an, a set of animal calls yeah. um, that it are meaningful, but they're not composable, decomposable. Mm-hmm. So she's um, being tentative in her analysis all the time yeah. and, and sort of going. Which they don't like. And right. The yeah. Military. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I. Th- I thought it was really, I mean, it didn't sort of labour that point too much, but mm. yeah, it was 
I thought it was great in that yeah. depiction. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think the way that she uses different modalities is definitely, mm. you know, she ends up using writing as well, just creating just more opportunities to yeah. um, cross-check and to repair as well, to mm. figure out if something's gone wrong. I think... It's not the sort of thing that I'm very good at, but I have sure. used the movie as in a field methods course to kind of illustrate this process. Wow. But I think what's interesting about the movie and these aliens and certainly the short story on which it's based really emphasises this point that we don't even know if the aliens understand the concept of a question. It turns out mm. that they do, mm. but what else don't they understand? And what's interesting is the aliens never ask the humans anything no. they're not trying to in some ways they aren't really trying to communicate yeah. they're they're um passing on information that's linguistic but that's about all mm -hmm. and so for me <clears throat> what i would be feeling in that situation is more as an anthropologist wanting to ask what is going on yeah. at all what is this interaction yeah. mean and in human societies we do these things with language that aren't about communicating information. Mm -hmm. We do lots of, like, speech making. You don't learn anything new, mm -hmm. usually, from a speech or an annual report or anything yeah, like sure. that. And certainly not from ritual events like a wedding. You don't want to learn new information no. at a wedding. No, you know? no that's so, not ideal. It's not ideal. <laughs> so, so in a way, what do the heptapods understand is going on yeah. if they're not actually interested in sharing mm. information in this way? And I, it do, does make me think of, if you read... Christopher Columbus's journals from when he went to Bahamas, he didn't ask any questions <laughs> right. about language, about culture, about social organisation, oh about gosh. belief systems. He yep. asked, where's the gold? And it's so boring. Yeah. And it's so boring. And it's like the, um, it's kind of like the military in this film. They yeah. are so uncurious yeah, about really the culture. They're interested notionally in the language, but they don't actually even have a, a, a question about no. what is the culture of these yeah. of these beings? Yeah, there is that real tension because mm. obviously the linguist is is so fascinated and really sort of nerding out, and they just want to know: <laughs> Are we in danger? Yeah, yeah. Are they going to kill us? Which is you know, fair enough, but yeah. it's a shame. Yeah. Um, so, a main theory in the film: I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this up, but I think it's called Sapir Wharf. Yep. Hypothesis? Did I get that right? Yep. Sort of. Um, it, so it states that language doesn't just give people a way to express their thoughts, but it influences um, and can determine their thoughts. And so, spoiler alert, um, we see this in the movie when Louise learns their language and then it sort of alters her brain and, and how she perceives time and, and she even starts to dream in it. Um, is this, you know, do you guys, are you familiar with this theory probably? And do you put any stock in it? It's um, definitely a kind of ongoing um, question in linguistics. Mm. What is the um, relationship between cognition and language? And is there a sort of one-way relationship in that the way you um, perceive or experience the world is that determined by the grammar of your language or mm. the kinds of words that you have in your language? Um, or is... So there are a few possibilities here. It could be that language determines thought. It could be that um, our cognitive structures determine what kinds of language structures we're capable of producing. Um, or there could be some kind of third factor. Sure. That, and that, that's kind of where, and the answer is yes. So the answer is all of those things yeah, yeah, are yeah. sort of um, evidenced in different types of studies in, and looking at different types of things. So. Um, 
an example would be something like, so you want to look at something where you think, okay, every human, um, every human population, let's say at a population level, because there's individual kind of differences, mm-hmm. um, has the same ability to perceive the colour spectrum. And in everywhere on Earth, colours are kind of actualised in the same way, yes. like in, sort of the, in the physical domain. Yep. Um, and so they're two constants. But what we notice is that languages differ in the in, in a number of colour terms they have. So this is a good thing to kind of look at then. So does that mean that um, speakers of those languages perceive the spectrum in different ways? differently because their language is kind of shaping the, yes. what they attend to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, there's a famous uh, Russian blues experiment, for example, which looks at how it compares um, English speakers because we have these uh, two colours, light blue and dark blue, but you notice we're using blue mm. for both of, to label both of those, whereas in Russian they have completely different terms, a bit like the way we have pink and red. Yes. We don't say light red and dark exactly, red. Exactly, yeah. So the hypothesis is that Russian speakers um, should perceive these colours as more different than English speakers, or at least should be maybe quicker to perceive them as different. So mm-hmm. there's an experiment looking at that. And yeah, it, wow. So it shows that when Russian speakers can use their language in the tasks, they are quicker at perceiving a difference. Mm-hmm. But when they um, are prevented from using the language part of their brain because they're being distracted, like they're having to talk at the same time, the difference disappears. So oh my gosh. Um, that shows that there is some, I mean, who cares really? <laughs> We're yeah. talking about milli- milli- milliseconds here. So in the real world, it's not like what Louise goes through when she has completely sure. different perspective of time. But on the other hand, there are experiments that show this third factor. So the third factor would be culture, practice, yeah. uh, physical environment. Mm. So there's this great quote from Dubois that says languages uh, languages or grammar codes best what speakers do most. Right. So this shows how it's like our preoccupations, the environment we're in, the things that we need to be doing with language, that's what that what drives what is in the language. Okay? Yes. That's yes, yes, yes. what we're attending to. We have lots of terms for things that we're attending to and dealing with often. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it sounds like a bit of a chicken and egg um, yeah, exactly. argument. But um, so the question now is really not um, just does language determine thought? It's a much more nuanced question about what is the relationship between language, cognition, cultural and social environment, mm. physical environment, um, and in how ha- in what ways does that kind of um, all interact? I yeah, suppose. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's kind of a relief as well, just sort of knowing that there's more to it because I feel like it's so scary that she just sort of learns this new language and then suddenly um, she knows everything that's ever happened. It's like, it's really well, big stakes. I think what, I think the film makes, that makes a really other interesting point about this whole discussion is that it shows that humans are not immutable, right? right? Mm. That there are, um, we can acquire new languages. I mean, in fact, most of the world is monolingual, uh, is multilingual, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So are operating with more than one language. And it shows that we can learn um, more than, uh, we can learn additional ways of attending to and experiencing the world. Yes. So definitely language is not a straitjacket. It's more like <laughs> yeah. a habit and Ooh. habits can certainly be broken. So <laughs> I think that's where the science is at. In no, the that's, good. Yeah. that's good. That's um, good. Okay. So just one more. Um, 
from sort of a larger science, linguistics, anthropology perspective, um, is there anything that you suggest to the audience keep an eye out um, when we're watching Arrival on the 23rd of November? Yeah, um, a few things. I think um, for me, keep an eye out for the way that the aliens represent through their kind of quote-unquote written system. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a couple of things that really interest me about this. One of it is that the they produce these signs but these signs evaporate they're not durable and for a long time standard definitions of writing made durability a criteria for what makes writing writing so if it if it lasted for a a period of time it was writing and if it didn't it didn't Um, but that of course has changed with us using handheld devices and so on and we now produce a lot of communication that evaporates just like the Mm -hmm. aliens' signs do. Um, So Snapchat is a perfect example of this, right? So the aliens are really Snapchatting at (laughs) Louise Banks and it doesn't undermine the modality. It just means you have to pay attention to it while it's it's active. So that's one thing to look at. And the other thing, as I'm interested in writing systems as well, is to look at the shapes of the the signs that Mm. these aliens make. And a phenomenon in writing systems is that you sometimes get um, what's called iconicity, so things like Egyptian hieroglyphics look like things that we recognise in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But then other sign systems, like message sticks, for example, uh, which is not technically writing, but it's a sign system, are very, very abstract. So most of the signs will not be iconic. They might be notches or dots or or other things that sure. don't immediately evoke something in the world. Mm. I think in the signs used in Arrival do a little bit of both. Yep. And part of the iconicity, some of it is relative size of things, mm. but some of it is also looks a little bit like the heptapod's bodies, yeah. which makes sense because sure. you do get that kind of iconicity in writing systems too. Um, including the one that I worked on in in the Philippines, this idea that signs should um, be derived in some way from the the body, the human body, but in this case, the alien's bodies. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is, yeah, that's excellent. And anything, Sally? Well, I think one of the reasons why I love this film is that um, I think one of the most important tools we have as scientists is actually our imagination. Mm -hmm. And being able to imagine different scenarios can sometimes help reveal what is actually fundamental, though maybe seemingly mundane, Mm. about our own uh, way of doing things. So I think, I mean, I think just go with the flow of the movie. It's such a beautiful movie in many ways. But maybe if you're reflecting afterwards, I would think about um, what is it um, that couldn't be assumed by Louise when she was talking or interacting with the heptapods. And that reveals some really important, fundamental though, perhaps mundane things about human communication. Like we take it in turns when right. we talk, for yes. example. This seems like such a banal thing to mm-hmm. observe, but actually it's been one of the kind of foundational um, observations on which a whole lot of research about the mechanics of conversation Um, has been based on right Mm -hmm. Uh, so just putting that on the table as an explicit thing we're saying this is look this is a thing that we do um, is really powerful uh, actually in science so um, yeah think about what are the things um, just in terms of managing the interaction in terms of what do we what shared assumptions about um, the context 
do we bring with us into an interaction with another human? Um, even if we're not speaking the same language, we can often still get some meaning created or shared. Yeah, yeah. Um, but how do we do that? What are we mobilising mm. to do that? That we sort of had to um, take off the table, uh, that Louise had to take off the table with heptapods. Exactly. So that would be the sort of things that I still reflect on afterwards, after the film. Yeah, yeah it definitely It's a film that I remember watching in the cinema when it came out and I've every time I get a chance, you know, if it's on a big screen, I will watch it. I love it. It's, um, it's like quite haunting as well, so yeah. mm. heads up. Um, okay, so we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much, Sally and Piers, for you. coming in and chatting today. And um, we'll see you both on Thursday, the 23rd of November at 6 p.m. So please join us at the Belgrave. Thank you.